What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. I know for a fact that we have a lot of non-Catholics who listen to EWTN, and we're very glad that you are part of our uh, radio and uh, TV audience. But you know, you probably have a question or two about the Catholic faith, and maybe you've not heard that particular question addressed on any of our shows. Well, here is your chance to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271. Two nine eight five, And of course, you can always send us an email. We'll hit one of those in just a second here. The address ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our uh, producer. Uh, also, um, we have Matt Kabinsky handling a phone screening. That'll be the first voice that you hear when you call in. Jeff Burson is handling social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, just put that question of yours in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. You, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here. This is from um, Joan in Wyoming. Joan says, My 40-year-old daughter is losing her belief in God because, as a child, she was told many times by a Catholic deacon that the devil and evil spirits were going to attack her. She was told that these evil spirits would physically scratch, push, pinch, etc. at any time of the day, in any place, and that these evil spirits would also attack her mind and confuse her academically and emotionally. Recently, she told me she has been in therapy over this. She shared that she spent her college years looking over her shoulder on campus, looking for the devil. When asked, this particular member, this uh, deacon, stands by his comments He said he was only trying to uh, be a warning influence. She and her husband always wanted children and began the adoption process, but had a a tragic child placement event. This has also impacted her belief that there is no God. What should I say to her? This is from Joan in Wyoming. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So as far as what you should say... You know, I can tell you a lot about how I feel about the formation she was given and what was wrong with it. How effective will it be if you simply share my thoughts on that issue with her? Right now, the damage is done. The trauma has been endured. Um, So let me first share my thoughts, and then we'll talk about whether or not those are immediately pastorally relevant. Okay, This is obviously terrible formation that that this girl got. got. I mean, this this is not the mentality of a Catholic. We're not supposed to live in terror and fear uh, of demons jumping out from behind every bush to to rip our flesh and rend us and, and, and confuse our thoughts. 
uh, demonology is part of the Catholic tradition, but it is way down the hierarchy of truths, way down the hierarchy of truths. And to believe in God is not to believe in, uh, simply to believe in a personal agent locked in an interminable conflict with this overpowerful devil and, and this, this the sort of sense of uh, unseen spiritual battle that rages all around us and we're these hapless victims. That, that's, uh, I mean, there's, there's language to that effect in the tradition, but I think that's, that's not the way, say, someone like St. Augustine went through life. That's not the way that someone like St. Francis of Assisi went through life. And those are two very different kinds of saints. Um, rather, the Catholic, the first truth, the highest truth, the most important truth in the Catholic tradition is the truth of God himself, the existence of God. And God in Catholic tradition is conceived emphatically, not anthropomorphically, right? God is, uh, is an uh, infinite being, uh, metaphysically simple, containing no parts, immense in the sense that God is everywhere always at all times. There's not more God in an elephant than in a mouse. Um, God is the act of being itself that, that undergirds every concrete act of existence. God is goodness, truth, and beauty undergirding every particular instance of goodness, truth, and beauty. And, uh, and God is the being that beings have. And so openness to God in this really, really expansive sense is openness to the fact that the universe is intelligible, that there's a rational order to things. Um, that reality is fundamentally good at, at, at the end of the day, and that, uh, you know, when I will concrete particular goods, like the good of my wife or the good of my child, or even the, even the good of a pepperoni pizza, if I still ate <laughs> such things, that, that all of these things are, to a certain extent, a participation in the goodness that is God himself. And evil is not, I don't think of it so, so much as a personal agent that's out there malevolently trying to destroy me, um, as much as it is the the act of of a of a demented will turning away from the goodness truth and beauty that's resplendent and evident in all things and mm-hmm. so evil is something that you know, lies in the freedom of my own moral choices and yes it can be influenced by an external agent but but ultimately it's a matter of my own uh, my own conscious decision to either embrace the good the true and the beautiful or to live in a way that deforms my own character and violates other people's dignity um, so it's a much more benign view of the universe um, and a rational conception of good and of, of the, the spiritual journey, the spiritual challenge is, is construed less in terms of a kind of violent warfare where I'm likely to lose and more in terms of the, the development of the human person according to all of my rational capacities to, if I can quote the U.S. Army, be all that you can be, yeah. right? And with the help of grace, of course, and Christ as our model of uh, of what a, a charitable and virtuous life looks like, and the saints also, in their in their respective ways, and all the different personalities show what you know a generous human life can actually look like, and that that's the way we should think of ourselves and our Christian life and our formation. And so, this kind of uh, you know paranoid apocalyptic view of the universe, yeah, it can be quite it can be quite traumatic. I understand that, uh, but that really is remote from. Uh, what it means to be a Christian. Cardinal Ratzinger wrote a book one time called What is a Christian? And his conclusion at the end of the day is the Christian is the person who loves, right? That comes to have, Mm -hmm. to see the world through Christ's eyes, to see uh, value in the marginalized and uh, and to reach out and to and to try to be Christ to others. That that's the way we live our Christian life. So this not the formation she got, and the effects were were devastating. Now how to translate that in a way that could be helpful to her? 
Maybe I can touch on that after the break a little bit. Yeah, sit tight uh, there, Joan, in Wyoming. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. Hey, we've got some phone lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon on EWTN. It's called a communion for you with Dr. David Andrews on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. We have a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Andrews. Or maybe you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic in the first place. 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in a moment here. We want to uh, continue our conversation uh, regarding this uh, email from uh, Joan from Wyoming. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically uh, Joan is saying that her 40-year-old daughter losing her belief in God because as a child she was told many times by a Catholic deacon that the devil and evil spirits were going to attack her. Yeah, exactly. So before the break, I talked about, I think, the correct way to think about the spiritual life and the existence of God and and where the devil and the demons fit in that hierarchy of truths. And they are very low down the list, actually, in the hierarchy of truths. And and recognizing that the kind of formation this child got really was traumatic psychologically, and mm. I've seen that before. It's terribly unfortunate. So, you know, what do you do about it now that you're 40 years in? Well, I, I think most importantly, just don't be that kind of Catholic at her, yeah. right? So you purify your own faith of superstition and live a generous, virtuous, kind-hearted, open-hearted kind of a life towards her, inspired by your love of Christ and your belief in the benevolent God who is in control of everything. And uh, that's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. Now, you know, I think you can also just freely admit, say, you were badly formed. Um, you can say, you know, it, it, to the extent that you may have had a, a sort of a hand in that by neglect, you can apologize. Like, I'm sorry I didn't step in sooner and, and do something to derail this. I, you, know, you were being mistreated and I didn't do anything about it and I'm sorry. That was wrong. Um, I think that's really important. Um, and, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and recognize, uh, acknowledge that this was very aberrant formation, right? And yeah. ca- call, it, call it bad. Call it what it was. Call it evil because it was evil. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of a, of a more rational conception of God, um, I, there's a book by an Orthodox theologian named David Bentley Hart that really does capture the Catholic sense of what we mean when we say God. And the title of the book is The Experience of God. It's a very philosophical book. Um, but uh, when people are struggling with the concept of God and they're wrestling with a kind of anthropomorphic conception of God, uh, this is the book that I often suggest to them. Now, that, will she read it? I have no idea. Probably not. Um, and it's like I said, it's a bit on the deep side, but mm. that's a good one. Joan in uh, uh, Wyoming. Joan in Wyoming. Thank you so much uh, for your email. We hope that's helpful for you and your daughter. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to uh, Carlos to kick things off here. Carlos is in Dallas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Hey, Carlos, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, man. Thank you for the, uh, taking my call. Great great show, as always. My my question is rather simple, but um, not always easy for me to, to, to answer. How do I convince someone without using the Bible, that hell exists. Yeah, I don't think that you can. I don't think it's possible. Um, The Catholic faith contains many truths that 
can be demonstrated from philosophical reason. It contains many that cannot be, that we rely on divine revelation to establish them, and we believe them on the authority of Christ and the apostles and the witness of the scriptures, uh, not philosophical reason. Hell is one of those. Hell, I think, to be one of the mysteries of the Catholic faith, meaning that it really exceeds our rational capacity to grasp. And so I don't think that it is possible to prove the existence of hell relying on, on reason alone. I, I, think, I, I don't think you can do that. Um, now, I would also add that I, I don't know why you'd want to, personally, right? Um, when I talk about the Catholic faith, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't lead with hell, you know, hell's not where I start. Yeah. Now there's a there is you know what you call a hellfire and a brimstone preacher. I mean there is that kind of approach to evangelism where you literally try to scare the hell out of people and you you know present Christ as the solution to the problem that they didn't know they had. Um, but that's effective, I think, in a very limited number of cases, and and maybe that cultural moment has passed forever. And the cultural moment we're in right now is one where people are inclined to see the church as as irrational and dogmatic, unfriendly, unkind, and judgmental, uh, and, you know, it, it, in caricatured ways. And I think it's really important to not try to, to try not to conform to those stereotypes and to present a face of the Catholic Church and of Christ and the mystery of God that they probably haven't considered. So the last call I was talking about what Catholics mean when they say that God exists— and it's something that a lot of people don't know. They don't realize how sublime and, and, and deep and profound and mysterious the Catholic doctrine of God is. Um, but it entails a goodness that pervades all of reality because we derive all of our being from God. St. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it, it, it's, it's intrinsically open-minded because anything that exists in reality is good because God literally underwrites its act of being at every single moment. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Catholic the Catholic need to say no to no concrete thing. What he says no to are disordered acts, right, but not to beings. And um, and that really opens wide wide the door of possibility for human experience and culture. And um, and so that, I mean, I, I really want to begin with you know, living a virtuous life, living a rich life, living a, a full life, and present that fullness of life in Christ as something that's intrinsically attractive, rather than, say, starting at the other end and, you know, beginning with a promise of, you know, well, God really has it out for you, but I've got a solution. <laughs> yeah. Carlos, thank you so much for your call. Great one. And uh, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. You know, here at the network, we're always adding new things, adding new programs, adding new uh, social media platforms, all sorts of things. Here's something you may not have heard about, the EWTN Pro-Life Pulse. This is your weekly recap of the top pro-life headlines moving our nation and our world that perhaps the mainstream media has missed. Visit EWTNnews.com slash pro-life. Sign up today. Stay connected. EWTN Pro-Life Pulse. I'm going to do that as soon as I get off the air here. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Andrew listening in northern Utah on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Andrew. What's on your mind today, sir uh, hello thanks for taking my call uh my my hang-up is the church's doctrine about the 
the nature of the the image of God. We're created in God's image, etc. Plus, there's there's uh, endless scripture about God the Father. Uh, definitely a masculine figure. He's always referred to by Christ as his Father and, and him. Uh, but I keep running into statements about God being genderless, about God being pure spirit and neither male nor female. And I just want to know how those two ideas marry in. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the Catholic doctrine of God is that God is a spirit. God uh, is not a biological entity. God is not an organism. Uh, so God uh, has no sexual differentiation at all. I mean, to even assert such a thing is to just radically misunderstand the kind of thing that God is. Um, he's not even a thing at all. Right? He's not a being among other beings. He's the very active being. God is the very active being itself. Now, uh, there are historical reasons why uh, God is addressed using the masculine pronoun in sacred scripture. And honestly, they go, they go way, way back in human history, back to Iron Age religion in ancient Canaan, uh, when if you compare, say, the biblical account of creation to the creation myths of, say, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish, for example, uh, it's not uncommon to find depictions of the creation of the world where the universe is, say, constructed out of the, the dead body of a goddess, that kind of thing, right? Um, um, and the, the image of fatherhood and paternity, uh, God's creative act in the book of Genesis is at some remove from the physical universe, God's transcendent. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the actual conduct of human fathers and mothers, but archetypally, the way uh, fathers and mothers appear, so like historically and throughout culture and human consciousness, mm -hmm. fathers are more remote right, from the act of parturition and from child-rearing, and they typically have their faces sort of towards the external world, if you will, uh, and the image of, you know, of protector and governor. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a normative claim about how fathers today have to relate to their families. I'm not endorsing patriarchy or chauvinism or something like that. I'm talking about how Iron Age religion would have conceived the thing in their moral imagination. And I think, of course, I can't prove this, that the biblical language about God's paternity reflects that kind of note of divine transcendence, of something that is more remote from that act of parturition. We're not, you know, the, the world is not conceived in the Genesis account as something issuing forth from the body of God, right? Um, but uh, but as a, a spontaneous creation out of nothing, over which God rules with majesty. And, and you could object and say, well, you know, Anders, doesn't that convey all kinds of, of uh, say, uh, uh, inappropriate uh, gender stereotyping about male-female relationships, and should we really endorse that? And the Church's position has always been when any language we use about God is inherently deficient. You know, if I call God mother, that's deficient. If I call God father, that's deficient. Uh, even to call God a being uh, is profoundly deficient, believe it or not. Um, and, and so there's a whole school of Catholic theology East and West, called via negativa in the West and the apophaticism in the East, that says that the way to approach God is by the way of negation, namely that God is not this and God is not that. God is not a father. God is not a mother. Um, God is not a thing. God is not a being. Um, and that uh, it's kind of ra radical unknowing is the only reliable way to approach God. And both of those traditions, that the cataphatic, which is the way of affirming, and the, and the apophatic, the way of negating, both mm -hmm. have a place in Catholic spirituality and religion. So uh, the way the catechism handles it is, look, we have this traditional language 
all of it's problematic. However, whatever language you chose, if you made up a new one, it would be problematic. Uh, the goal of Catholic theology and spiritual reflection is to continually purify our concept of God from any anthropomorphism or any kind of limitation uh, and recognize that these things are provisional. But I think that's that goes to undercut, un underscore where the tradition comes from and why it's there. But we find that intention with passages like, uh, what is in it, Psalm 91, that compares God to a mother chicken. <laughs> God is not a mother chicken any more than God is a father in the biological sense. Uh, and so these metaphors are used, you know, uh, uh, and uh, but we recognize them just as that, just as metaphors. Sure. Is that helpful for you, Andrew? It is. It's, it's apparent to me I've got to come over or get over a lot of conditioning in my own conversion, which I'm an anxiously pursuing. Uh, you know, it's uh, if there's an answer, it's that I need to greatly broaden my perception of just what God is and what it is I'm addressing uh, in prayer and in my own thoughts. I um I mentioned this earlier in the show. I really recommend a book by David Bentley Hart called The Experience of God. And it's simply a work in definition. What do we mean by the word God? There you go. Andrew, great call. Thank you so much for checking in from Northern Utah. Keep listening to EWTN on uh, Sirius XM chair, uh, channel 130. We are uh, bringing it to you 24 hours a day on uh, many of our platforms. EWTN uh, is everywhere. That's what they tell me. Uh, and speaking of everywhere, we just heard from Patrick on YouTube. Thanks for the inspiring program. I'm streaming you live from Uganda. Oh, wonderful. Thank about you for that. listening. Also, uh, also on YouTube is TM Day. Greetings from the Emerald Isle of Ireland. Fantastic. Love to hear from uh, people all over the world. Here is Joe now, who's uh, right here in Birmingham, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, what's on your mind today? Yeah, um, I don't, I'm trying to remember the exact scripture, but basically it's uh, you're forgiven your sins except the sin against the Holy Spirit. I've been told that the unforgivable sin is one that you don't ask forgiveness for, and I just wanted some clarification on that. Yeah, sure. So the Catholic doctrine <clears throat> is that the unforgivable sin is final impenitence, right? That when I persevere uh, to the end of my life unrepentant, that, that that final act of impenitence is the unforgivable sin. Now, I think we can go back to the context in sacred scripture and make some sense of that. So we find that passage in a couple of places in the Bible. Mark chapter 3 is one of them. And what occasioned Jesus's remarks was that he was performing exorcism. He was casting out demons. And the Pharisees came and said, well, he, he casts out demons by the by the by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And the first thing Jesus says back is, well, that's just nuts, right? <laughs> because, you know, if Satan is trying to conquer the human person, why would he defeat his own minions that are doing the job so effectively? That just doesn't make any sense at all. But moreover, the real objection that Christ had was he said, look, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you know the the kingdom of God has come among you. Right, so it's evident that the works I do are done in God because they're so good. They, they're confronting yeah. evil and destroying evil, yeah. and so I think Jesus is implying that at some level you know darn well that I'm not operating in demonic power. You know, you understand darn well that I'm operating with divine authority, but because you don't want to accept what I say, you're making up this nonsense response, right? You made this nonsense justification claiming that I'm operating by the power of Beelzebub when you know better, right? Yeah. That kind of hardness of heart is the spirit that leads to final impenitence, that just a, total, a determination to utterly reject uh, the goodness of God when it's offered to me, right? And of course, 
if you don't overcome that, that's it for you. Yeah. Well, I won't do a Mother Angelica impersonation. I'll, I'll leave that to Raymond Royo, but she would say, that doesn't make any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. And I got to love that. Joe, thanks for checking in right here in good old Birmingham. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones at 833 833- 288-EWTN. Please join us if you've got a question about the Catholic faith. Love to hear from you on this Thursday afternoon. 833-288-3986. We're also going to get to a question from Nelson on YouTube that came in at the end of the show yesterday. Didn't have time to uh, tackle it yesterday, so we're going to tackle that today. Again, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders on EWTN on this Thursday afternoon. Stay with us. Very glad you're with us for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on this uh, Thursday afternoon. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's that question now from Nelson, who uh, wrote to us yesterday on YouTube. Couldn't get to it. It came in toward the end of the hour, uh, but we're going to tackle that right now. Nelson says, how much of the Bible is written by man instead of God? For example, the book of uh, Revelation. Yes. (laughs) The right answer there is yes. Yes. So God stands behind the writing of sacred scripture, which was carried out by men. So there's not there's not one passage of the Bible that say dropped down out of heaven. All of it was composed, written by men. Literally, men took took uh, papyrus and stylus in hand and scratched out the words. And in doing so, they used all of their human faculties. So they didn't go into some sort of dream or, or sleep and how and, you know have with automatic writing taking over. No, mm. they they thought and they plotted and they imagined and they researched and they prayed and and they recorded and they reminisced and they did all the things that humans do when they write and they put pen to paper and and created the various products that would eventually be uh, be gathered together as holy scripture and the church's position is that whole process was superintended remotely by god i've often heard the phrase inspired writers is sure, that, that, sure. Does that sound about sure. accurate? And, and, you know, no place is this clearer, I think, than, than the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, where the sacred author says, you know, I, I wanted to write some stuff about Jesus, so I went out and did a lot of research. You know, I <laughs> asked a bunch of people and read the right books and, you know, looked into things, and then this is the account that I've composed. I mean, he, 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 he freely admits the very human element in the book's composition, yeah. and yet the Church says— and in doing that, he was guided, perhaps unknowingly, by the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think it's fairly evident when Paul writes his epistles in the New Testament, for example, he is not conscious of contributing to something that would eventually be called the New Testament. No. He, he doesn't know he's doing that. And his letters don't reflect that. They don't, they, don't, they don't take the shape of something that was intended to be like a rule of faith. They are occasional documents written for particular reasons to particular communities. And he greets people by name and you know, say hey to so-and-so for me, and, you know, <laughs> it, this is the way he's writing. And, and it's only after the fact the Church looks back on that and says, well, the whole process God intended eventually yeah. uh, to be incorporated into sacred Scripture. What was that quote? I, I forget which book it was, but it was like, look at how big my handwriting is, or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the Book of Romans, I forget his name, but Paul used an amanuensis. 
you know, like a scribe. Yeah. And he says, oh, I'm so-and-so. I'm Paul Scribe, and I'm writing this, you know, and I say hi, too. Yeah, love it. All right, there you go. Uh, Nelson, thanks so much for checking in on YouTube. Uh, let's get back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Haley in Brookings, South Dakota, listening on TuneIn. Hello, Haley. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a friend who is a Protestant, and she was asking my advice. Um, sorry, I've got my nine-month-old listening here. Uh-oh. So, um, oh, okay. She uh, is dating a guy, and they're doing long distance right now, and she's not sure. He's, he's in school, and she's not sure whether to keep her good job that she has. Yeah here in town or to leave her job and and follow him wherever he's going to go. So she's kind of wondering a general question like, can she make the wrong choice and God still makes it work for her and him? Or is it better to kind of just, you know, cut your losses, even though she's been with this guy for a long time? Sorry, it's kind of vague. Yeah, I I understand the question. Thank you so much. So here's... Um, here's what I'm going to tell you. And this is, this is my opinion. And, you know, I, I, this is a real prudential question. So I'm giving you a personal opinion. It's not like gospel truth, but I think it, it stands up to scrutiny and, and bears a witness of Catholic history behind it. Life is not a romantic comedy. Life is not a romantic comedy. What do I mean by that? Well, in the, in the genre called romantic comedy, people do all kinds of God awful, stupid things, but the universe or the narrative sort of conspires against them to bring about a really delightful destiny. And so they end up with the man or the woman of their dreams in spite of their foibles and their idiocy in a way that everybody goes, oh, isn't just that... Bef- just, just before the credits, right? right? Isn't that endearing? Isn't that <laughs> sweet? And we, we're raised on these kinds of films from childhood. And, uh, and unfortunately, I think as a culture, including Christians, we've imbibed this idea that someplace out there for me, there is Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And all I need is the kind of mystic key, right, that will, that will turn me on to this. And maybe I just throw myself into the stream of historical causation and trust that this benevolent destiny will come to pass. And I'll, uh, you know, the person that I find myself with will end up being Mr. Wright or, or Mrs. Wright or Mr. and Ms. Perfect, and, and it'll be happily ever after, and, and it'll all be wonderful. Um, and... Uh, then there are the pastors who spend 40 years of their ministry trying to put broken marriages back together, right? And, yeah. and, and I get how easy it is to be blinded by love and passion and hope and expectation and desire and longing. Um, but if we open our eyes and look around at the actual state of married life in North America and Europe, we recognize that it's a disaster. It's an absolute unmitigated disaster. And nothing has has undergirds that disaster or explains that disaster more, I think, than a romantic conception of married life. And this this sort of this this implicit understanding that reality is a romantic comedy and that I need to just I just need to chase destiny and throw prudence to the winds and it's gonna all work out. Now the fact I may try to implicate God in the process. I may make this a particularly Christian form of romantic comedy and instead of fate or destiny it becomes God that's the agent who's responsible for making sure that my life turns out happily. Um, I, 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 you know, I was that 21-year-old guy, 
and I'm 52 now, and looking back after 30 years with the benefit of hindsight, I think that is a horrifically naive view of relationships and the vocation to marriage. Here, in my judgment, is how you should think about marriage as a Catholic person. I'm called to the estate of marriage, to the state of life called married life, okay. which means, principally, that I want to build a family, and I, I want my family to, I want, I want to raise children, I want them to be virtuous, um, resilient, self-reliant, charitable people with faith in God and love towards neighbor. And that ain't going to happen by accident, right? And the most important thing I can do now to guarantee that outcome or to, or to try to influence that outcome is find the guy or girl who I think today, not what I'd like them to become in 10 years, but today is the most reliable, trustworthy, generous, virtuous, hardworking, uh, resilient person who I would most want my kids to be like if they could be like somebody today, right? Is this guy who I'd want my son to be now, now, today, who he is today? Is that who I want my son to be? And if the answer to that question is no, because he won't make a commitment to me, or he's 300 miles away and I have to go run around chasing him. My, my experience, if a girl chases a guy 300 miles across the country because he won't make a commitment or sacrifice his ambitions, she's going to be running that chase for the next 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and, and neither God nor the Holy Spirit nor the Easter Bunny or romantic comedies or Hollywood or anybody else it will solve the problem of your of your ridiculously naive and immature decision, right? Which is why in traditional cultures, and I'm not advocating this, by the way, I'm just point, making a point of contrast, mm-hmm. young people don't make this decision for themselves. I mean, that, that's, that's part of what the tradition of arranged marriage is in places like uh, some places of Africa and India is all about. It's about, mm-hmm. you know, 21-year-olds have heads full of mush, and they're not competent to make these kind of judgments. So let's let's take counsel for some wiser, cooler heads, right? And we're not going to, you know, in the United States, we don't typically do arranged marriages, but we should absolutely seek counsel from people that know something about married life and maturity. You know, it, is this the kind of guy I ought to be with? And you know, not may it, could it work out one day, but is it working out right now the way I want it? Is do I want to live this experience for the next fifty years? Those are the kind of questions we need to be asking. Haley, thanks so much for your call. I hope that is helpful for uh, your friend. It is called a communion here on EWTN. We'll get to Pedro in Arizona in just a moment. Hey, be sure to join us for Word on Fire, a very timely program this Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Brandon Vaught and Bishop Robert Barron will be discussing the Catholic Church's view toward the dignity of work on this Labor Day weekend, and also the rights of workers, learning from uh, Dorothy Day, St. Jose Maria Escriva, and several recent popes. Do check it out. Very timely show, Sunday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. All right, let's go to uh, Pedro now in Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Pedro. What's on your mind today, sir? Pedro, are Hello. you there? Hi, Pedro. Yes, yes I'm here. Go right ahead. Yeah, well, this is uh, maybe not too much of a question, but I, 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 I kind of identify myself as, as completely pro-choice uh, when it comes to abortion. And I think women have a right to choose to do whatever they want with their body. 
and their private parts and take off their breath to to not get cancer or whatever. I'm completely 100% pro-choice. This is what the stance that women get uh, whenever they talk about abortions. They say it's our body, it's pro-choice, it's our body. But I think, I don't know why this point isn't made too much, or it is made, seldom made, that as long as it's her DNA, she can chop off her arms, do whatever she wants, as long as it's her DNA, I am 100% pro-choice. And... Uh, but when it comes to the DNA of something else, somebody else, especially in her body, that's not her DNA, I don't think a woman has a right to that. I, I, I'm against abortion, but I'm also 100% pro-choice. I think women have to have a right, and that's their stance that they have over uh, across the country. It's their pro-choice, it's their body, and, and they leave it at that. And, and I think, uh, I don't know why we as Catholics don't uh, uh, make this point a little bit more frequent, that, yes, I think women have a choice with their body as long as it's their DNA. If it's yeah, video- yeah, I think I can speak to that, Pedro. I really appreciate the question. Let me draw a couple of distinctions at first, okay? I want to distinguish moral theology, which is the, 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 the intellectual discipline that the Catholic Church brings to consider the good of the human person, what is actually good for people, like what will bring my integral development and my happiness and flourishing, both individually and culturally. So let's take moral theology as one category. Then let's look at public policy. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Public policy is what should the government legislate? Now, it has never been the case in human history that any government on the planet could legislate perfect morality. It's impossible. It's impossible, right? Because so much of legislation deals with concrete particular issues for which there may not be a clear right, wrong, moral answer. And I'll give you an example. Should we build this bridge? Well, it costs this much, but it'll benefit the economy this much, but it might hurt the ecosystem this much, right? There's not going to be a a, a clear right or wrong answer to the question, should I build this bridge, right? And so what policymakers do is they, they get down in the weeds. Well, you'd like to think they do this. Probably what they end up doing is the constituent with the deepest pockets wins, right? <laughs> but what you'd like to see them do in an ideal government would be that they actually get down and consider, make a cost-benefit analysis of some kind about the, you know, the various interests that are being met, the various goals that we have, you know, what kind of costs are we going to look at and incur in these domains and that domains, and, and, and come up with a prudent decision that is the best approximation of serving the common good in this concrete particular circumstance. And when it comes to issues that are much more directly moral, even there, uh, the Church has always said, you, you, you can't just say that policy, government legislation, always follows the line of Catholic moral theology. Um, and I'll give you an historical example. Many people are probably surprised to know that St. Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the chief moralists in the Catholic tradition and a doctor of the Church, personally believed that prostitution should be legal. Now, was he in favor of prostitution? No! He thought it was a horrible sin. He thought it was terrible. Awful. Gross indignity to all the people involved. But he also thought, in the 13th century, that it would be impossible to effectively regulate, Mm. and that the cost of society in trying to do so would be greater than leaving it alone. Mm. Now, you can say Thomas was wrong. And most people, I think, today would say Thomas is wrong. Sure. Uh, But he was no liberal. 
Thomas. Like, not in that sense, right? And actually, his position wasn't all that uncommon at the time. The point being, no Catholic has ever thought that you could design and enforce a regime that perfectly reflected Christian morality. And, you know, there's another reason for that. Not everybody's a Christian. And not all Christians live in the state of grace, right? And so you have to make prudent choices about public policy that sometimes deviate from the perfection of Catholic moral theology. You know, if you are the one pro-choice, excuse me, if you're the one pro-life person in a regime with a million pro-choice people, trying to push pro-life legislation is not going to be on the table for you, right? Regardless of what is actually in the interest of the common good, it's not an option for you in that kind of situation. And so let's, policy is over here, right? And 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 get your thinking about abortion and and the DNA or whatever you think. Put the policy question aside for a minute, and recognize that there can be different ways of approaching that given different cultural situations. But let's look at the moral question itself. Do I have an absolute right, morally? Is it in better yet? Is it in my moral best interest to take a view of my human body? that whatever passion impels me, I should indulge, right? And, 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 and should the church validate, uh, facilitate that, v- that view of my own flourishing? Is it in my best interest and the interest of society for me to simply indulge any passion without restraint? And at the social level, let me give you a counterexample to the ones that you have raised. Um, what if I want to become a heroin addict, but I'm a single dad raising three small children under the age of five? Would you endorse the position that the good for me and for culture and society and my family is that no one should tell me what I can do with my body? And I have an unrestricted right and, and good reason to spend my life shooting up heroin. Well, first of all, what will that do to my body? It will destroy it. Yep. Secondly, what will it do to the lives of my three underage children? Demolish them. It will demolish them. And in almost every jurisdiction that I know of, if someone actually chooses to live that way, the state is going to be in their lickety split to take those children away and put them in foster care, mm-hmm. right? Because it's devastatingly bad for those kids, right? I could multiply examples all day long of instances where me following my passion willy-nilly wherever that goes um, is going to be really devastatingly bad to me and devastatingly bad to the people in my life and to my community. And so Catholic moral theology is nothing other than the science of trying to discern what is the good of the human person. And then say, yeah, do that. Whatever actually tends to genuine human flourishing, do that. Hitting myself in the head with a hammer does not tend to my own flourishing, nor to that of society. So don't do that. Now, should we pass legislation making it illegal for me to hit myself in the head with a hammer? Sometimes, yes, in my opinion. For instance... I think it's perfectly reasonable. The heroin addict who doesn't want to give up his addiction, even though he's got three small children to take care of, the, the, the state does right to remove that, those children from that home. 
and to say, this is wrong, this is illegal, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. There are some times when the, even the state at the level of policy should come in and say, yeah, for the sake, for your good and the sake of the common good, this is bad, we shouldn't, we shouldn't endorse this. But I would grant to you that there are occasions when it becomes impossible to legislate or to enforce legislation, and sometimes the state cannot legislate, say, perfect Christian morality, or even perfect human morality. Appreciate your call, Pedro. It is called Communion here on EWTN. Just heard from David S. watching us on YouTube this afternoon. David S. says, can I baptize my children in the Catholic Church without being Catholic myself? I still have not made the move to convert. My hope is that I can get over my obstacles eventually. Um, the answer to the question is yes, but typically a priest will not baptize your children unless he has a reasonable expectation that the children will, in fact, be raised Catholic, mm, right? Yeah. And in my experience, priests will interpret that necessity um, in, in more strict or less strict ways, right? So some priest might say, look, if there's even a shadow of a hope that they're going to be raised Catholic, I'll baptize the baby. Mm. And there are others that want to know, like, you know, have you been going to Mass every week for the last year? Right. And that, that really is kind of particular to the priests in the parish. Sure. So short answer, yes, but only if there's some expectation they'll be raised Catholic. But my question would be, my gosh, man, if you want to have your kids raised in the church, presumably you do because you want them baptized. Come on. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I'll help you. Let's hear these obstacles. Let's deal with them. Absolutely. David, thanks for listening to us uh, via YouTube this afternoon. Here's a question now from Brenda. Dr. Anders, I need your counsel on this subject, please. In our parish, we have a man who is Catholic who recently, quote, married another man in a Presbyterian church. Prior to this, he has served as cantor, extraordinary minister of the Eucharist, and lector. He has been removed as extraordinary minister, but is still being allowed to cantor and lector. He is also allowed to receive Holy Communion at our church. Our priest's explanation is, quote, Life is messy. This is disturbing to me. Am I in error? You are not in error to be disturbed. You are not in error to be disturbed. And uh, and uh, even Pope Francis, who is sometimes, I think, misread as thinking that we should just hand out church offices and communion willy-nilly to every Tom, Dick, and Harry, um, mentioned in the Morris Letizia, right, which is his rather controversial encyclical on, on uh, married life, mm -hmm. that people in irregular situations shouldn't be put in positions of prominence in the church, such as cantor, lector, extraordinary ministers, etc. Right? So, yeah. I mean, like, and the reason why is, like, I don't have an unrestricted right as a Catholic to be a lector. You know? I mean, like, trivially, if, you know, if you have a, if you have a speech impediment, don't get up there and read the gospel. Yeah. You know, like, th this mm -hmm. is... That that has nothing to do with the moral life, and even more so, um, don't stand up to proclaim the gospel unless you're willing to live gospel values, mm. right? I mean, because people know in the community, and, sure. and, and it, it, there is a there is an implied endorsement there, you yeah. know, when when you do that, and so it doesn't mean look, we want people to be able to come to mass, we want them to feel like they belong to the church. Look, I Tom over here is a fantastic lector; he he lectures all the time, and I love to hear him read. I've never lectured. Right, really? I've never let. Well, you know, except like at a private mass. No, okay. I've never lectured in the parish mass. Right. And and like my not having lectured or my not serving as an extraordinary minister or my not uh, being a can you know I was a cantor once at EWTN one time really? one time they asked me to cantor the mass on television, <laughs> and uh, you know we always sing the ordinary in Latin, 
and uh, I got on I got on the air, and I was like, I, all of a sudden, I mean, I've sung the Our Father in Latin a gazillion times. Lights in my face, my mind went blank. I couldn't think of it. Oops. I'm like, you know, that was the last time I got invited to lecture. I wonder why. I just couldn't remember it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have the text in front of me, otherwise I could have sung it. But, um, but yeah, my not doing those things doesn't signal that I don't belong somehow to the church. Sure. But, but you know, in my case, because I forgot the darn Latin, um. You know, it wasn't appropriate for me to go back and do it again. I wasn't the greatest cantor. And there can be all kinds of reasons. It doesn't mean you don't belong in some sense to the church. Right. But there can be all kinds of disqualifiers. And, and if your being there would send the message that, not the message that life is messy, the message that would be implied, uh, that would be inferred is, um, this is okay. And the church says, this is not okay. So you're not wrong. That, 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 that we, we shouldn't be doing that. Brenda, thanks so much for your call. Here is Patricia now, a first-time caller from Leesburg, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Uh, Patricia, we've got about a minute left. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Dr. Andrews. I had to call in and thank you for that wonderful answer on the difference between Catholic moral theology and public policy. I hope that... that you can reprint what you said and send it to all our pastors across the United States. If the average Catholic understood that, we'd have so many fewer problems in our country. Well, I, I appreciate that, but you understand I didn't make this up, <laughs> right? I mean, I learned this from, from wiser, cooler heads. Like, look, one of the most uh, famous Catholic thinkers about public policy and political theology is John Courtney Murray. And, I mean, the man was on the cover of Time magazine in, um, you know, in the 1960s and contributed to, uh, practically composed the, the statement on human dignity and freedom of religion that went into the Second Vatican Council. Wow. Um, Murray's book, We Hold These Truths, which I read as a Protestant. I read it as a Protestant. I remember reading his book and thinking, my gosh, Catholics have a far more sophisticated understanding of public policy than I did when I was an evangelical. I mean, as an evangelical, it was just, you know, kind of, thus saith the Lord, let's yeah. legislate the Bible. And that doesn't work. And uh, so I'd recommend I'd recommend uh, Murray, among others. Patricia, thank you for your kind words for David and for the show. We re- really appreciate hearing from you today in Leesburg. Hey, Dr. David Andrews, <clears throat> thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com radio. Look for the word podcast, click on that, and you are good to go. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you.